The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking this morning at Genesis chapter 20, the account that you just read and that we heard together. Yesterday in New York City, bells throughout the city tolled at four different times. Uh, One to signify the time three years ago when the first plane hit the first tower, and then later when the second plane hit, and then a third time when the first tower crumpled to the earth, and then a fourth time when the second tower did the same. It was a commemoration, of course, of September 11, 2001, when three years ago this nation was subjected to terrorist attacks. And as people met together to commemorate that and think together about the past and what happened, to remember loved ones and to weep and to pray and turn their hearts toward God, uh, a question was in the minds of many, and a question has been kicked around, especially during this time in which we're living as we are approaching a presidential election. And the question is, are you safer now than you were three years ago? Wherein do we find safety and security in a world that hates God? That's the question. Are you safer now? And uh, some people would answer, no, I, I will never look at the world the same way again ever since that happened. I will never feel the same way when I board an airplane again, they would say. Um, I will never feel the same way about being in a crowded restaurant or in a, in a bus depot waiting. Uh, I'll never feel the same way again. Always in the back of my mind, they will say, is lurking a suspicion that I might be the next victim of a spectacular terrorist attack. And that feeling has only been corroborated by the small world in which we live, in which things happen on the other side of the earth, and we know about it the moment it happens, just about. Uh, and terrorists have attacked uh, commuter trains in Spain, and viciously, uh, a public school in Russia, and we all saw the effects of that. And so the question comes in, are we safer now than we were three years ago? Now, the September 11th Commission basically came up with one central message, and that is, our nation was unprepared. That's kind of their main message. We were unprepared. And in the wake of that commission report and in the light of the presidential election, people are asking, well, how can we be better prepared? What can we do about terrorism? How can we find security? Perhaps the answer is uh, more military systems or better, better trained uh, anti-terrorist commandos. Perhaps what we need is a, is a better uh, worldwide system of intelligence gathering, especially in the Muslim world. Others would argue completely differently, saying we need a better profile in the world. We, as a nation, need uh, to present uh, a more generous and caring face. We need better relationships with Muslim, our Muslim neighbors. And we'll find security in those things. Also, people debate uh, the war in Iraq itself. Did it make us more or less safe? And I think you really kind of pay your money at the beginning of that question before you enter into it. Because how in the world could we ever answer something that complex? Those that uh, would oppose the war in Iraq say, no, it's actually destabilized. You know, Al-Qaeda and other groups are more able to recruit and, and there's more animosity. 
Whereas if we kind of played the situation differently on September 12, 2001, and from then on, that we would have world sympathy on our side, etc. So they argue. Others would say we had to remove Saddam Hussein. It was like a cancer, etc. And so the debate goes back and forth. Now you may say, why are we even talking about this this morning? What possible relation could it have to Genesis 20? Well, I think it has all relationship to Genesis 20. You see, because when, when Abraham came to that region, he looked around and said, there's no fear of God in this place. And he was afraid. And you know what he did? He looked inward and dealt with it with his own resources. He lied and he connived and he schemed. He looked inward when he should have been looking upward at the sovereign God. And this is what I say to you, American Christians. You will not find your security in any of the things that I have mentioned here. But in God alone do you find security. In trusting in him alone. And you know why? Because the real danger hanging over the human race is not a terrorist attack. It is eternal condemnation at the hand of a just God because of our sin. And what can rescue us from that? Only God and God alone. And so we find our security in him. Not in whatever commission comes after the September 11th commission or whatever schemes the American government makes or other governments in the world. No, we don't find security in that. We find it in Christ. And Abraham should have found it there too. He should have found his security in God and in God alone. Now when we come to Genesis 20, we come to another embarrassing moment in the history of the patriarch Abraham. This is not one of his best times. And isn't it remarkable how we can go back and forth? The, the stubbornness of sin. We see it emerging again. Look at verse 2 of our text today. It says, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, the context here is Abraham's continual wandering as he goes from place to place. Uh, he lives in tents, as the scripture says. He's got no permanent dwelling place. He's got the promised land, but it isn't his yet. And so he's got to move around. And so he leaves from the, the oaks uh, at Mamre and he goes into this desert region in Gerar. Look at verse 13. He talks about this. And in verse 13 he says, When God caused me to wander from my father's house. And he's a wanderer. He's an alien and a stranger in this world, just as we are. You may own a home, but this is not your home. You're an alien and a stranger in this world. And so Abraham wandered into this desert region. When I was in Greece this summer, I was uh, speaking and ministering to missionaries that are working in Eastern Asia, or Eastern Europe, sorry. And one of, the play, one of the ministry groups that they target are gypsies. And there are hundreds of thousands of gypsies in these Eastern European uh, countries. You can see them along the side of the road. They still are in these quaint horse-drawn drawn, uh, carriages in some, in some places. They have no home. And they're not welcome in any nation almost. They're really shunned. Well, to some degree, Abraham was like that. He was drifting around from place to place. He had no permanent home. And as he comes there, as we read in the account, he looks around and says, there's no fear of God in this place. And so he's concerned again about his wife, Sarah. Now, by this time, she's almost 90 years old. Now, I wonder how good-looking she was at that point, but he was concerned about it, about her. And so he's, he's saying, you know, there's no fear of God, and I've got to do the same thing I've always done. And this is the second time now. He did this in Genesis 12 in his trip into Egypt, and he received difficulty there as a result. And now he's going to do it again. How stubborn is the stain of sin, isn't it? How difficult it is to conquer the habit of sin. A.W. Pink put it this way, Sad indeed, inexpressibly sad, was Abraham's conduct. It was not the fall of a young and inexperienced disciple but the lapse of one who had long walked the path of faith 
that here shows himself ready to sacrifice the honor of his wife, and what is worse, to give up the one who is the focus of all God's promises. He was ready to to trade all that in for personal security, for safety. And so we see how difficult it is to break habitual sin, how hard it is. Pink again said about this, what made the matter so much worse in Abraham's case is that it was not a question of being surprised into a sudden fault. It was rather the recurrence of an old sin. Long ago, he had followed the same wicked course in Egypt and had been banished in disgrace. But it seems as though he's learned nothing from that experience. And so here he does it again. Now, in verses 3 through 7, we see God's sovereign restraint of sin. God is active in the world restraining sin. The church is called to be salt in the world. And I look on that as a restraint against sin. You know, salt desiccates. It dries out the meat. And so corruption can't spread so quickly through it, through salted meat. God is the ultimate salt in the earth, resisting the spread of evil. He is active all the time, blocking people's evil intentions. And so we hear, we see in this text, the interference of God, the activity of God in blocking sin so that it can't happen. He gets involved. Look what he says in verse 3. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And so God rebukes Abimelech for his unwitting sin. And amazing how strong is God's rebuke, isn't it? Basically, you're a dead man walking. It's just a matter of time, Abimelech. You're dead because of the woman that you've taken. Now, Abimelech pleads innocence by reason of ignorance. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did He not say himself to me that she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so this is Abimelech talking to God in a dream. Have you ever had a conversation with God in a dream? But he's pleading innocence. He said, I didn't know. Not guilty by reason of ignorance. And this is what it says in 1 John 3.21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness or confidence before God. And that's exactly the way it was with Abimelech. He said, I didn't do anything wrong. Now, ignorance greatly mitigates guilt. The less you know about God's will and his commands, the less guilty you are. It doesn't remove it entirely. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And so he is guilty, but his ignorance uh, mitigates his guilt greatly. We see also, however, God's sovereignty in restraining the evil. Look what he says in verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Did you notice that? God said, I will not let you do it. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is very active in the world in restraining evil. He is not passive. He's not along for the ride in in world history, just seeing what's around the next bend on the Whitewater River. That's not God. He is controlling events, and he's interfering here. He's getting involved. He stops this situation before it can unfold. And he tells Abimelech what he must do. There's There's a time, you know, when I'm sorry isn't good enough. There has to be restitution for the evil. 
There has to be restitution made. Something has to change. You can't just say, I'm sorry, but I didn't know it. I'm going to go ahead and take her. Well, you do that, you're a dead man. So there must be some restitution. In verse 7, he says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Isn't that striking? Your life is hanging in the balance. The only thing that's going to save you is if you return the woman, and if he prays for you, then you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So it isn't just Abimelech's life hanging in the balance here. There are other people who are hanging in the balance based on what Abimelech will do. More about that in a moment. This is a great threat against Abimelech. It's a great danger. Well, if you were Abimelech, what would you do? You wake up and you say, get that, get Abraham in here. I need to talk to him. He summons him and in he comes. He called all of his servants in verse 8, rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. There's an intense urgency here. First order of business is deal with this woman and deal with the situation. There's amazing urgency here. And he does early in the morning. And then he calls Abraham in, verse 9, and says, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you? that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom. You have done things against me that should not be done. Now, that's a rebuke, isn't it? Now, Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to the Gentile nations. He's not supposed to bring a curse and death. But that seems to be the very thing that Abraham has brought to Gerar. It's the very thing that Abimelech is facing. He's saying, you you have done things to me that should not be done. Interestingly, in verse 10... The ESV has it right, a more literalistic translation. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. What did you see that you did this thing? In other words, what did you see in me? I need to understand the way you perceived us. And notice what he says in verse 11 through 13. He said, Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. We live in a world like that, don't we? We live in a world not characterized by the fear of God. Any of the terrorists who do the kind of evil things they do, there's no fear of God in their eyes. They have their own view of God and it's idolatrous. They don't fear the true God. There's no fear of God in this place, said Abraham. Now, he misjudged Abimelech by a country mile, didn't he? He missed him. Abimelech did fear God. All it took was a dream and he's immediately zealous to do what's right. And so he was wrong about Abimelech. He did fear God. But not only that, Abraham faithlessly misjudged God's sovereign power, the power that's available to keep him safe and protect him, the very power we see at work in this chapter. Do you see it? He forgot about God. He forgot about his faith in God. He says, they will kill me because of my wife. Now, a vital thing for you to understand right now in my reading of the text is that Sarah is not pregnant yet. Why is that important? Well, she, gets, she conceives Isaac in chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. So she's not, she's not with child yet. How in the world, then, can Abraham's life be hanging in jeopardy? God has made a promise that through his seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. And so faithlessly, he's not trusting in the God of the promise here. Now, in chapter 22, he will spectacularly trust in the God of the promise. By then, his faith has reached a high level. But here, it's so weak. They will kill me because of my wife. And then he gives the humorous rationalization. Besides, she really is my sister. 
You think that's really going to make things well between him and Abimelech? Oh, all right. Well, well, tell me the technicality. And how, oh, okay, I understand. No, no, no. I was almost a dead man, and God is not impressed by your technicality. She really is my sister. After all, she is the daughter of my father, though not of the daughter of my, my, my mother. And, and so he, he, he says she's my half-sister. So you see, I really wasn't lying, actually. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The issue was that Abimelech was going to take her to be his wife. The fact that she was his sister, really was his sister, is totally irrelevant in this case. He should have fessed up. And besides which, the Lord has covered this in his law, hasn't he? It says in Leviticus 19.11, You shall not lie nor deal falsely with one another. He conned Abimelech. He was a false dealer. And he reveals that this was a deeply embedded pattern of unfaithfulness. He said, I made the commitment when I first began to wander from my father's household. I said to my wife, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So they got that settled 25 years ago. It's been working ever since. And actually, it really is a good con game, isn't it? Every time he does it, he ends up richer, you know? Good things come to him every single time. I think he missed the point from Genesis 12. So this is a deeply seated pattern. It's a commitment that he's made between he and Sarah. They forgot about God, though. It was a fleshly commitment. Then Abimelech is zealous. He uh, moves forward for restitution and vindication of Sarah. Abimelech fully obeys God. He immediately restored Sarah. He humbly asked Abraham to pray for his healing and the healing of his house. For God, it says, had closed every womb in the house because of this offense. And so everybody was affected by what, what had happened here with Abraham and with Abimelech. And Abimelech fully restored each relationship and covered the offense by generosity. And so we have grace bringing about a happy ending. Look at verses 14 through 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother... Notice that. I think that's interesting. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. And so we see grace covering a multitude of sins here. We see graciousness at work. First of all, God is gracious to Abimelech. He's gracious in that he brought the illness to begin with. You may not think of it that way, but it was a gracious act of God to protect and prevent sin. And so the sin, the, sorry, the disease, the illness came into his house from the grace of God. God was gracious also to Abimelech in warning him by means of a dream rather than just simply bringing judgment. God didn't owe a warning to Abimelech. He could have just killed him, but he was gracious. He was also gracious in the timing of the warning in that it came before any sin could actually occur. He, he timed it perfectly, and so he interfered before the sin could be consummated. He was gracious in the mode and the message of the warning. It was a dream, mild and yet convicting, he was gracious in accepting Abimelech's explanation. Yes, I know that you did it with clean hands. He was gracious in telling Abimelech clearly what to do to make it right. And then he was gracious in hearing Abraham's prayer on behalf of Abimelech and his nation. 
So God was gracious to Abimelech. God was also gracious, uh, or Abimelech was uh, gracious in turn to Abraham and Sarah. Abimelech could have had them executed. He had the power to do it. Abimelech could have been furious with them, but instead he was gracious with them. He was humble to ask for prayer, and he was generous. He gave a thousand pieces of silver and freedom to settle anywhere in the land. Abimelech was also gracious to restore Sarah to her husband and restore Sarah and Abraham their dignity in the eyes of everyone. Abraham was gracious to Abimelech in that he prayed for him. But the real grace was God to Abraham, wasn't it? More than anything, it was that God was gracious to Abraham. God protected his plan. He protected his redemptive plan in that God intended very soon to conceive Isaac by means of Abraham. And not only was God gracious to Abraham, he was gracious to all of us by beginning the redemptive plan through Israel in this way. So we see the grace of God covering a multitude of sins. Now, what lessons are we going to learn about God and man in this account. First, let's learn about about human nature. Do you see the incredible stubbornness of entrenched sin patterns? While we were in Japan, my wife and I made a um, comforter. It's on our bed. It's the first and the last one we ever have made or will make. It was a lot of work, but it's special to us. And about four years ago, um, a, a little red pen stain got on it, and um, I don't know what happened, but we didn't deal with it immediately. I guess we tried to clean it, but whatever. Now it's, it's a permanent part of the cloth. This is the way it is. You know, if you don't deal with things immediately in terms of cleansing, I, I, think, I really think Christy can get anything out as long as she has it enough time, okay? But that, this is the way it is with sin. If it takes root in your behavior patterns, it's really tough to eradicate. Now, here's the thing. The way I read the Genesis account... Abraham was at this minute innocent of all sin because of his faith in God. Abraham heard the promise, he heard the word of God, and God credited it to him as righteousness because of his faith. This is in Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. What that means in the word of justification is that in the judgment book of God, all of his sins have been erased. They're eradicated by the blood of Christ. And so Jesus said later in John 15, uh, verse 3, he said to his disciples, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Isn't that incredible? For God, through Christ, to stand and say, All of you who have trusted in me savingly, you are all free of of the guilt of your sin. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But here's the interesting thing. God removes the blot on his judgment book before he removes the blot in your character. And for the rest of your life, you're battling the, the entrenched effects of bad decisions you've made in the past. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The character traits. It's so hard to overturn them. And here is Abraham giving us an example of that. We also see in this the way our sin affects other people. It isn't just us that's affected. Notice how Sarah is lying now. In a few chapters, it's going to be Isaac doing the very same thing, like father, like son. He's going to try the same trick. And so it's Isaac who's eventually going to be affected. Abimelech's very life was hanging in the balance. Abimelech's uh, family, his household, and in fact his whole nation was affected by this sin. It isn't just us. Sin is too expensive. It's devastatingly expensive. Thirdly, we see the powerful effects of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It was because Abimelech feared the Lord that he went zealously and made it right before anything worse could happen. 
Fourthly, we notice the powerful effects of prayer. It says in uh, James 5.16, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You know what that means? Some, now hear me carefully, some disease and, and, and sickness and infirmity is the direct result of sin. Do you see that in this account? The, the wombs have been closed up. There was physical infirmity and it was directly because of sin. Do not misunderstand me. Don't make the, the mistake that Job's friends made that every time that there's an illness, there's a hidden secret sin in it. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes there is. And when there is, James 5 says, the answer is effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man and confession of the sin. Bring it up. Deal with it so that you may be healed. Those are lessons about human nature. What do we learn about God's sovereign grace? Well, first, our sovereign God has a sovereign plan and he will not allow people to derail it. He's not going to allow sin to derail it. He gets involved. That's so encouraging to me. No matter how much it seems that earthly events are spinning out of control and how grievous it is to read about terrorist attacks like the one in Russia and how terrible it is to see the pictures and how much they can bring us to tears and should, yet God is sovereign still. He is ruling still. He is able to stop things from happening. Do you put your trust in the Office of Homeland Security? Is that what you're trusting in? You ought to take a tour, go down there and talk to the folks, whatever. And and I'm not saying they're not doing a good, hard job, but how in the world can we be protected against small terrorist cells who want to kill eight people if they wanted to with a car bomb? How in the world are they that powerful? My friends, they are not that powerful. But I put my trust in a God who is. He is sovereign. And he is powerful. How many Al-Qaeda plots have been spoiled by circumstances? Well, you'd have to have an Al-Qaeda convert. Let's go see if we can win one of them to Christ and then come and say, tell us what's happened over the last 20 years. Have there been any circumstances that have interfered with any of your plans? Any time that you were intending to do something and then something happened and you couldn't do it? I'm sure they would testify again and again and again. Is it not the hand of God in secret protecting, working, Channeling the river of history for his purposes. Our God is sovereign. Now, I'm glad he did because you know something? This encounter between Abraham and Abimelech could not have happened at a worse time. Let me explain to you what I mean. Suppose that Sarah had spent just one night, I mean just one night with Abimelech, and then shortly thereafter she was pregnant with Isaac. Do you not see how God's specially crafted supernatural plan, the miracle baby, the child born in Abraham's old age, would forever have a big dark question mark over it saying, hmm, you know what I think happened? I think that Sarah needed to get herself a man who could give her a son. And there'd be some questions, some whisperings. Are you saying the human heart isn't capable of that kind of questioning? Of course it is. God was crafting a wonder child. Isaac, the son of the promise. And there's no way he's going to allow Abimelech and Sarah to have even one night alone together. You understand? And so God interfered before any questions could be be darkening the sovereign power of God. The redemptive plan of God had to be protected. And so it says in Isaiah 7, 7, in another situation, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen. 
that is our God. He said, no, it's not going to happen. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God interferes with sin and doesn't let it happen? Aren't you glad that he is sovereign over those things? And so he says in verse 6, that is why I did not let you touch her. Truly God is a sovereign king. Now, I want to make five connections to the person of Christ. I always want to learn in an account, an Old Testament account, what it teaches me about human nature. And I always want to learn what it teaches me about God. Well, we've talked about that. But I also want to see, is there something of Christ here? Is there something I can learn about the person of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing I want to learn is just that Christ's character shines by contrast. Abraham's one of the great men of history. He's one of the great men of the Bible. And if you don't think so, read Genesis 22 again, when God tested Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. And you see his obedience and his faith. What a great man he was. But he was not a perfect man. He was not a sinless man. And therefore, he was disqualified from being our Redeemer. It's impossible for him to lay down his life because he was a sinner. But you see, Jesus is absolutely sinless and perfect in every way. He never once told a lie. He never once misled anybody. He told the truth to Pharisees. He told the truth to tax collectors. He told the truth to to friends and enemies alike. And in the end, when his life was hanging in the balance and he was standing before the high priest, he told the truth about his divine nature and it got him killed. He stood before Pilate and told the truth again and it got him killed. He was a truth teller, absolutely flawless, unlike Abraham. And so we see Christ's character shining by contrast. We see, secondly, Christ's human lineage protected and enabled here. I've already mentioned what would have happened if God had not interfered. Christ's human lineage was going to go down through Isaac. God already made that promise. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be named, right? And so we have the genealogy in uh, Matthew 1, 1 and 2. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it begins in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. That's how it all started. God interfered and protected the earthly lineage of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see Christ as the second Adam, a strange corporate identity, which is our only hope. Now, central to the idea of Abimelech's plight is this concept of what we call federal headship. What do I mean by that? That a king represents his people, that a father represents his household. Do you see? God actually upholds this right in the account. Look at verse uh, 4. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, and so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Abimelech's concerned about his whole nation there. Do you see it? And look again at verse 7. God speaking here. He says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die... You and all who are yours. It wasn't just Abimelech that was going to die for Abimelech's sin, but everybody who belonged to him. This is a strange idea to us Americans, isn't it? We're very individualistic. Why in the world should I be held accountable for the sins of another? Well, that bothers me. I stand or fall on my own two feet. And yes, I've done some things wrong, but I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Why should I be held accountable for somebody else's sins? And then when we come to a deep doctrine like that called original sin, and we find that Adam represented the whole human race at the tree, 
Now that's troubling to us. It doesn't seem fair. Adam stood in our place and represented us, and as a result of his sin, all of us die. Death entered the world through one man, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned in Adam. How can that be? It's a strange corporate identity. We don't understand it. And so, as one of my children asked years ago, it's not fair, Daddy. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. And neither were you there when they crucified your Lord. You weren't there when Jesus died in your place either. And just as Adam sinned for us all, so also Christ stood in the place of all of his people, all who would trust in him and believe in him. He is the second Adam. And so federal headship, the idea of a single representing all of us, that's our only hope of salvation. Do you see that? It says in Romans 5.19, For just as through the disobedience of the, many, the me, uh, of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Jesus is your representative. He stood in your place on the cross, and he died in your place. That's your only hope and mine. Fourthly, we see Christ as prophet and priest. This, in verse 7, is the first mention of the word prophet in the Bible. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. We also see the impact of the king, Abimelech, on his whole people. And we see Abraham doing a priestly intercessory ministry. He's praying as a priest would. But all three of these, prophet, priest, and king, are fulfilled perfectly in Christ. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the final word, the prophet, and he is our great high priest who ministers for us. And then finally, we see Christ's atonement, which is a covering for the eyes. The actual mechanism for atonement is displayed in Abimelech's restitution. Look at verse 16. In the King James Version, verse 16, it says, And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes. That's literally what it is, a covering of the eyes. That's what an atonement is. Let me explain what I mean. Do you realize that the, that the eternal God never forgets anything. So how is he going to forget your sin? What he does is he puts the blood of Christ as a covering for his eyes so that his eyes, so pure and holy, can only see the shed blood of Christ when he looks at you. That's how it works. He interposes the blood of Jesus Christ between his holy eyes and your sin. When I was in uh, Greece, I was with Alan Carlson, and he told me a story about a little girl in one of his uh, classes, Bible classes. And the question was asked, is there anything impossible for God? And she gave the answer. Now listen to this. Yes, it is impossible for God to see through the blood of Jesus and look at my sin. Isn't that beautiful? I'd like to know who that little girl was. Deep in theology and strong in her faith. I love it. It is impossible because God has made it impossible. It is impossible for him to see through the blood of Jesus and look at your sin. Now, what applications do we take from this? First, just acknowledge the stubbornness of your own sin patterns. Just realize you're fighting it too. You're no better than Abraham. He's just like us. And so acknowledge it and grieve over the amount that your sins have cost you and those around you. And today, like Abimelech was in the dream, today, if God is warning you to turn from sin, do it without delay. Why presume that God's going to give you six months as time to turn from your sin? Abimelech didn't have... Six days. He had to do it first thing the next day or God would have put him to death for sure. 
And if you know, or you yourself, or you know somebody that's struggling with a serious physical problem, I'm talking about disease or an ailment of some sort, do not assume that sin is not at the root of it. It may be. I'm not saying it always is the other way, but I'm saying sometimes it is. And take the advice of James 5.16 and confess your sins to others so that they may pray for you and you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And do not rest in the office of Homeland Security or in the winning of the next election or in the occupation or the liberation of Iraq. Do not rest in these things for your security, but rest in God and in God alone. And trust in the blood of Christ and in His shed blood for you. He alone can protect you and save you from your ultimate danger, which is hell itself. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.